Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This podcast features Brian Freeman at Carver County Library, Chan Hassan. Outside of the United States, the city of Duluth is best known by many as the primary setting for the mysteries of prolific, internationally best-selling novelist, Brian Freeman. He is the author behind the acclaimed Jonathan Stride detective series. Stride's 2006 debut, Immoral, won the McCavity Award and was a finalist for the Edgar, Dagger, Anthony, and Barry Awards for Best First Novel. Freeman introduced a second popular protagonist, eccentric Florida investigator, Cab Bolton, in The Bone House in 2011. Freeman's titles have been printed in 22 different languages and sold in 46 countries to date. His latest, Alter Ego, is the ninth installment in the Jonathan Stride series. In this memorable case, Deleuze's famous son finds himself investigating the mercurial Hollywood actor starring in a film about none other than Stride himself. The Star Tribune called Alter Ego a practically perfect summer read. Brian Freeman's latest explores the cult of celebrity and the sociopaths that it sometimes shelters. Well, uh, thank you so much for, for being with me here tonight. I, uh, I'm, I'm really delighted to be back in Chanhassen and, uh, and particularly pleased uh, to be doing another program in the, the Club Book Series because uh, they, they just do a wonderful job of bringing amazing authors uh, to libraries all around the Twin Cities. So uh, it, uh, it really is wonderful uh, to be a part of this program. Now, I, I recognize that um, you know, some of you may see me up here uh, and, and feel a little disappointed because I understand that in the, uh, uh, the local Chanhassen newspaper, uh, apparently it was supposed to be Jonathan Stride who was going to be speaking <laughs> at the library tonight. So, uh, so un unfortunately you're gonna have to be, you know, you're gonna have to put up with Stride's alter ego this evening. I, uh, uh, I will say, it, it reminds me of a time I, I did an event at a, uh, a bookstore in, uh, in Wisconsin, and uh, after the event and everyone had left, uh, I was chatting with the bookseller and, and uh, she, was, she was sort of chuckling to herself. Uh, apparently, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the people at the event had come to her afterward and, uh, and had said, uh, well, you know, that, uh, that, that Mr. Freeman, boy, he looks a lot like what I kind of think Jonathan Stride looks like. <laughs> and then she added in a whisper, but he's not very tall, is he? <laughs> so what, what you see is what you get, I'm afraid. So, Well, uh, it, has been, uh, it, it has been about four years since I did uh, my last club book presentation, and I think probably about four or five years since I was back 
uh, at the Chanhassen Library. And uh, that was when my, uh, my stride novel, The Cold Nowhere, came out. Uh, and uh, it has been a busy time uh, since I was last here, so I, I wanted to bring you up to date on everything. Since The Cold Nowhere came out and since I was last here, uh, I've released uh, my second Cab Bolton book, which was Season of Fear. Uh, I've released three Jonathan Stride novels, uh, Goodbye to the Dead, uh, Marathon, and Alter Ego. Uh, I've launched a whole new San Francisco-based series with Frost Easton, uh, so I've got The Nightbird and The Voice Inside out uh, from there. Uh, I've finished the third Frost Easton book, uh, which will be out in January, and I'm just putting the finishing touches on an original audio book for Audible, which will also be out next year. So. <laughs> it, uh, it, 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 it's, been kind of a, it's been kind of a busy stretch these last four years. Um, so what, what am I doing here? I should be home working. Um, well, actually, uh, there, there are a few things that, that Marcia and I enjoy more uh, than, than coming out and being able to do events and, and talk directly to readers. Uh, I will tell you that for me, uh, that's, really, that, that's really one of the great you know, pleasures and privileges of, of being an author is, is the opportunity uh, to meet so many readers face-to-face -face and, and online and, and find out about the roles that, that books play uh, in their lives. And uh, if you interact uh, with, with me and, and Marsha online, you'll, you'll know that we really, uh, we, we really like to build relationships with readers and, and uh, we, we've had the great pleasure of, of getting close to a lot of, lot of different folks over the years. And I think as a result, uh, readers tend to see uh, see us as very approachable, and, and we really like that. Uh, I have to say, yesterday, literally just yesterday, I, I got an email from a reader, uh, and she was telling me that uh, she um, wanted to order the ebook of my very first book, uh, Immoral. And so she had gone online at barnesandnoble.com and she'd ordered the ebook of Immoral. Uh, but there was some kind of glitch uh, in the ordering process, and when it got delivered to her e-reader, uh, it was actually in a foreign language. <laughs> and so she asked me, would you be able to have them resend it to my device in English? <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking, well, you know, that's not really the role I play in, in, in this business. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like when the, the grocery store forgets to bag your eggs, and you're thinking, well, I guess I'll just contact the farmer who raised the chickens. Um, but you know, I, I just I said to Marcia, honestly, I kind of like the idea that uh, this this person, you know, feels close enough to us that when she's got a problem with her retail order, rather than contacting customer service, she's just thinking, oh well, you know, I'll just talk to Brian. He'll know what to do. So. <laughs> So, um, so it, it really, it, it, is always, it is always such a treat for us to talk to readers. And, and you know, we, we, we get wonderful emails from people and often very touching things. Just, just last week, uh, Marsha and I were actually on vacation. I, I had just finished off the draft of, uh, of my Audible audiobook and we, we were taking a few days to celebrate. And uh, I ended up getting tagged uh, on a post on Facebook and, and Marsha and I found it right around the same time. And it was one of those just heartbreaking posts because uh, it, was, it was from a, a young woman uh, in her 20s and uh, her, her husband uh, had been diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer and, uh, and, and so it, this had just completely turned their lives upside down. They were just, uh, she, she was, and you could tell in the post she was just absolutely beside herself, didn't know what to do. 
And, and here in the middle of the post, she talks about the fact that the only thing that was, was taking her mind off this, this just horrible, horrible situation uh, was reading one of my books. And, uh, and that was why she tagged me in the post. And, uh, you know, those are the, those are the kind of things that um, they, they, they get, you, get you up every morning staring at that blank screen because it really reminds you of, of, of what books can do for people and, and how they can simply lift you up out of your current circumstances and, and take you somewhere completely different. So um, those, are the, those, are the kind of, those are the kind of messages that, um, uh, that, 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 that play a big, big role in our lives and, uh, and, and they really remind me of, of how special it is and, and how privileged I feel to be able to, to, to do this for a living and to, and to write books. So, well, I want to talk a little bit about the kinds of books I, I write, and, uh, and, and I'll give you a little taste of them as we go. Uh, I've got to catch you, got to catch you uh, up on all the books that have come out since I was last here. Um, you can tell, I think, that for me, um, a book really has to have an, a, an emotional core to it. I mean, I write thrillers. I mean, there, there's, you know, I want to keep you turning the pages to find out what happens next. Uh, one of my favorite emails was from a reader who wrote to me and, and said she'd been reduced to taking illicit bathroom breaks at work to get in another <laughs> chapter. I figure that's, that's me doing my job. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I want you to be up until three in the morning and, and the dog's not fed and the kids are starting to smell, uh, but uh, you just gotta find out what happens next. Uh, but you know, at the same time, my thrillers are, are psychological. I mean, the, the drama emerges out of the emotions and the secrets and the backgrounds of the characters. And uh, I, I kind of feel like if, if you're reading one of my thrillers, uh, I, I want you at some point uh, to, to, to find yourself sort of close to tears uh, as you get toward the end of the book because you're so invested uh, in what happens to these characters. And, and I know for myself, when I'm writing the books, uh, invariably there are scenes where I'm, I'm typing along and I've just got tears running down my face because I'm so connected to these people and, and I know that some, some dark and difficult things are gonna be happening to them. Uh, and, uh, and, and I always feel if I can get that uh, emotionally connected to their stories, and hopefully you as, as the readers will too. So for example, uh, one of the first things I ask myself uh, when I'm writing a, a new book is, is really not even to start with the plot necessarily, but to start with the characters and, and ask myself what's going on in the lives of the characters. Um, so for example, in, um, uh, in my stride novel, Goodbye to the Dead, uh, which came out about three years ago, Goodbye to the Dead is, is very unique among my stride novels because it is uh, split into two halves. And the first half takes place completely in the past, about nine years earlier, and then the second part takes place in the present, and the mystery ripples through all of the years in between. And the reason I structured it that way is because when you meet Jonathan Stride for the first time in Immoral, uh, he's dealing with uh, the, the, the death of his wife, his longtime wife, Cindy, and, and the grief that Stride feels over that loss casts a long shadow over Immoral and, and really over the entire Stride series. And I think throughout all of the, the earlier Stride books, Cindy is, is kind of like this ghost hanging in the background of, of the series. And uh, uh, she's sort of there between Stride and, and his new partner, Serena, uh, and, and both Stride and, and Serena find it difficult to move on past 
the grief that, that Stride feels for the loss of his wife. And so when I was writing Goodbye the, to the Dead, I, I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to give Stride a chance to say goodbye to Cindy, and that was what drove the entire novel, is I wanted to have a book where readers would finally get a chance to meet Cindy for the first time and understand what the nature of that relationship was really like between uh, her and Stride, not in that sort of idealized world that people can have looking back at the past, but in the reality of, of, of the give and take of their relationship. And then to be able to let Stride and Serena in the second half of the book find a way to start moving past all of that grief that has, that has been between them for so many years. So that's kind of the way I, I start these books, is by thinking about how uh, how these mysteries are going to change the lives of the characters. Uh, and, you know, Jonathan Stride is, is a very different man uh, in alter ego uh, than he was when you first met him uh, in Immoral. And, and the reason is that he's changed and evolved based on all the things that have happened to him in the books in between. And uh, so people will sometimes ask me, do you know, do you know how the, the Stride series is going to end, um, and, uh, and I always say, no, I, I really have no idea, uh, because ultimately, all of the characters need to keep changing and growing with each new book, and so uh, I don't know what Stride is gonna be doing in, in a few years, because I don't know necessarily what's gonna be happening to their lives based on the, the plots of the books that will happen in between. Uh, but it's certainly, it, it, for me, it's certainly been an amazing ride to, to sort of uh, grow up with, uh, with, with this man and, and, uh, and have him you know, change and evolve uh, over the course of the books. So that's one thing I do when I'm starting in on a novel, is I'm thinking through the emotional ramifications for the characters. The other thing, obviously, I'm doing is I'm, I'm building a, a mystery for the books. And um, people will always ask, well, where do you get your ideas? Uh, yeah, and they come from a lot of different places. Uh, you know, sometimes a, a book just starts with a, uh, an, an interesting little set piece in my head, and, and it sort of evolves from there. So. Uh, in my book, The Cold Nowhere, for example, uh, when I was first thinking through the plot of The Cold Nowhere, I didn't really know what was going to be happening in the book. The only thing I knew was that Stride was going to be coming back to his cottage uh, late one night out on the, uh, out on the point in Duluth, uh, and uh, he was going to find this, this teenage girl hiding in his bedroom closet, uh, soaked to the skin and saying that someone's trying to kill her. Uh, and I didn't know at that point who this girl was, or who was trying to kill her, or what her connection to Stride was. I only knew that that was sort of the image I had for how the book would begin. And I needed to start then answering the questions that, that came along from that. And it was from that uh, that I introduced the first new series character in the Stride series since it started, which was uh, this teenage girl, Cat Mateo, that appears in the cold nowhere and has now become a major part of all the Stride books since then. But the other thing that, that is kind of a source of plots is uh, I, I like to deal with, um, I, I like to kind of take true crimes that we're aware of and, and uh, change them and, and modify the circumstances and use them to sort of inspire the plot of the book. Uh, and, and by the time I'm done, you might not even necessarily know what the original crime was that inspired the book, but it's kind of there in, in the background. Um, so for example, uh, in my fifth stride novel, The Burying Place, uh, the, the crime that really sort of started uh, the burying place was the um, uh, was the murder of the uh, that young girl in um, uh, in in Colorado and now I'm totally blanking on her name. The, 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 uh, yes, John Bonet. Uh, and and I wanted to kind of I wanted to kind of 
evolve a case like that and, and, and change the circumstances. And in uh, Goodbye to the Dead, I was working, I was sort of inspired by a, um, a crime that took place in the Twin Cities where uh, a, a husband was accused of, of murdering his wife, uh, but the police never got enough evidence to be able to really say for sure, uh, was he actually guilty or not? And he was never actually brought to trial. And so I wanted to kind of take that same sort of approach and, and in Goodbye to the Dead, uh, I sort of turn it on its head and, and it's this, this, uh, this female surgeon in Duluth who is accused of, of murdering her husband. And throughout the book, throughout the years that go on, the reader is wondering, did she really do this crime or not? And I think one of the things that makes that appealing for me in, in plotting the books and, and hopefully makes it appealing for the readers is you know, there's, there's just something about an unsolved mystery that, that, that sort of uh, eats at us and, and makes us want to know what the truth is. And, and so you see these crimes that, that occupy the headline and, and you, always, you always wonder what the truth is behind them. And so in so many cases, we never have the opportunity to, to get the answers to the mystery. Uh, and so I, I feel that for, for me, when I'm writing these books, it, it gives me a chance to, to give people a certain kind of closure to these mysteries because I can suddenly put it on the page and I can create a mystery and, and I can give you all the answers that you crave at the end of the book. So you have a sense of how things actually fit together. And, and there's that, just that sense that, okay, now things are the way they're supposed to be because you know what really happened. So uh, the, the other thing uh, that uh, I, will occasionally, uh, I will occasionally do, and I want to talk a little bit about my, my last book, Marathon. Um, I, really, I really try to steer clear uh, of anything remotely political in my books. Um, uh, I, 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 don't, I like to deal with tough issues. Uh, I like to deal with, with issues that make you think and, and that people can have very passionate disagreements about. But I always present them in a way that there's a lot of shades of gray uh, in there. And I wanna kinda lay it all out for the reader and, uh, and, and let you kinda make up your mind for yourself who's right and who's wrong. Um, and so, uh, for example, just, just recently I had a, a, another uh, crime writer that I, I really respect, she came to me and asked me to, to give her an endorsement blurb on, on her next book. Uh, and, and the trouble was when she explained the book to me, um, she, it was clear that she was, it was a very political book and she was staking out very clearly one side uh, of, the, of the political divide. And I said, you know, as much as I would love to, to give you an endorsement, much as I respect you, that's just not the kind of book I wanna put my name on because for me, I want books to bring people together, and, and I, want, uh, I, I want to write stories that try to bridge the divide and, uh, and, and, and make people see past uh, what they think at the beginning of the novel and reach the end and, and feel like it's a way of, of uh, uh, trying, to, trying to, to heal some of the, 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 the wounds that go on in the book. Um, that was what I was trying to do in, in my, my novel, Marathon. Um, uh, Marathon was a very, very tough book to write. Um, if, when, when, I, when I say that I, you know, if, if you kind of take sides in a political issue, it means you always are gonna piss off half your readers. I, I kind of felt like in Marathon, I was doing my best to piss off everybody. Uh, <laughs> because in, in Marathon, there's, there's certainly gonna be a, a character that everyone uh, will detest, and there's gonna be a character that everyone will think they love, and hopefully by the time you get to the end of the book, you start thinking, well, gosh, I, maybe all of my preconceived notions about how this started might have been wrong. Uh, and so, uh, so I, uh, Marathon was very clearly inspired by the, um, the events in, in Boston, and, and because the, the Marathon is such an important part of Duluth, um, I knew that it had to become a part of, of Jonathan Stride's world, and, uh, and so 
Uh, so I wrote a book. It, it's not a terrorism thriller. It's not a political thriller. Again, I write psychological crime, and, and I needed to come up with a plot that really, at its heart, was about people and about how these things can, can change and disrupt people's lives. Uh, and, and the way I, I really chose to focus on it was how, uh, how I think social media uh, uh, creates and, and, and amplifies the divisions in society and, and uh, can, can create some terrible risks for people. Um, uh, I was thinking back when I was writing Marathon, I was thinking back to the, uh, the Centennial Park bombing of the Olympics back in the, the 1990s. And uh, if you remember back then, uh, there, was a, uh, there was a security guard who was initially a suspect in the bombing. And, uh, and, and for several days, he was the lead suspect. And, and his life was completely turned upside down, and everyone thought that this man was guilty. Um, and I was thinking, well, imagine if something like that happened today, and with the, the viral nature of social media, how instead of simply relying on a, on a TV program or a newspaper to broadcast the, the idea that this person is guilty, you've got Facebook and Twitter and all these other uh, media by which uh, the, the, these suspicions can simply go viral and, and spread the idea that this person is guilty across the entire world in, in, in no time at all. Uh, and that's what, I, that's what I focused on in Immoral, is the idea that there's this, uh, this young man in Duluth who becomes the center of this, this misguided manhunt uh, that, that completely destroys his life. And, and in the midst of all this uh, is Jonathan Stride, who is, is watching the bonds of his community fray and is trying to find a way ultimately to, to bring people back together. Uh, and so that, that was what Marathon was, was all about. It was a very, very intense, very emotional book uh, for me to write. And, and after it came out, I, I swore to my readers, uh, next year, nothing but serial killers. Uh, <laughs> so. And I, and I had the perfect plan for that, uh, because I had a book in mind called Alter Ego. Uh, and the concept behind Alter Ego was one I had been working with for a few years. Uh, and the idea was that, uh, that, that there would be this movie being made in Duluth based on one of Jonathan Stride's cases. I figured, you know, a little nudge, nudge to the film agents out there. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> And so the actor playing Jonathan Stride, so Stride's alter ego in the book, uh, he would be sort of this rather sleazy Hollywood character who seems to be this, this great idol but has all sorts of secrets hidden beneath the surface. And you, see the, you see the problem I'm getting to here. Uh, I, I wrote this book, I, I turned it in uh, uh, last September, uh, and literally two weeks after I turned in the book, uh, the entire Harvey Weinstein saga broke open <laughs> in the press. So uh, in, instead of my non-controversial little serial killer novel, suddenly I was right in the heart of, of the first Me Too thriller uh, that was being written. So, um, but you know, Alter Ego was, uh, was, was, was such, a, such a fun book to write. It's, it's very, it's very fast-paced. I think it may be the most fast-paced of, of any of Jonathan Stride novels. Uh, and I have just been overwhelmed by the response from readers. I, I truly have gotten more compliments from readers on, on this book than, than anything else I, I have ever written. Um, ironically, it is also the fastest book I have ever written in my life. I wrote and edited the entire manuscript of Alter Ego in 10 weeks. Uh, I've never done anything close to that uh, in the past. I, I hope I don't ever do anything quite like that again. Uh, but it was, it was seven days a week last summer for, for 10 weeks. And uh, the thing about that is, it w while it was a, a, an emotionally draining thing to do, 
Uh, there was also such an immediacy about the writing process that went along with that because every single day I was immersed in the book and I, I never got a chance to get away from it. And, and uh, as a result, I think you feel that, that sort of that propulsion of the narrative uh, when you read it. So um, I, will, I will read you a little bit from Alter Ego in just a little bit, but I, I have to now bring you up to speed on, on the, uh, the, the, other, the other man in my life. Uh, uh, and uh, that is a gentleman by the name of Frost Easton. Uh, he is a San Francisco homicide inspector. Um, I, uh, I, I did a deal with a, a new publisher a couple of years ago, and, and I decided to begin this new series. Uh, and it's kind of a homecoming for me because I actually grew up in the Bay Area out in, uh, in San Mateo, and uh, in fact my family, a lot of my family is still out there. So I thought, you know, San Francisco would be, would, I, I knew San Francisco, I thought it would be a, a great place to set a series. And then, you know, there's so much romance and drama about San Francisco. I, I was always a huge fan of Vertigo uh, growing up and, uh, and, you know, Jimmy Stewart down there by Fort Point. Uh, and I thought, yeah, San Francisco would be a, a great place for a, for a suspense series. Uh, now, the character of Frost Easton, um, he actually has some Minnesota roots that people may not realize. Uh, because uh, a few years ago, Marsha and I were uh, driving down uh, I-90 uh, to do an event in southwestern, a library event in southwestern Minnesota, uh, and we passed a highway sign uh, where the town of Frost is in one direction and the town of Easton is in the other direction. <laughs> and I said to Marsha, ooh, Frost Easton, that's a great name, I'm gonna have to use that. So when I was writing the first of my, uh, my new series, The Nightbird, uh, I was looking for the name of my hero and Frost Easton immediately sprang to mind. Uh, and in fact, in, in my second Frost Easton book, The Voice Inside, he actually explains that when his mother was pregnant, they happened to be on a driving trip across Minnesota and <laughs> saw highway signs. So, well, uh, the, uh, the, the first Frost Easton book was The Nightbird. Uh, and you know, for those of you who have read my books, I, I think it's meaningful to say uh, that The Nightbird is probably the creepiest thing I've ever written. Uh, it, uh, it, uh, it revolves around the idea of, of twisted memories and how your memories can be manipulated. Uh, and I had a chance to do a lot of research uh, uh, about a, a Berkeley uh, psychiatrist named Elizabeth Loftus who has spent her whole career dealing with uh, the idea of, of false memories. And, uh, uh, and I decided to, to, to create this psychiatrist, Francesca Stein, Frankie Stein, uh, whose, uh, whose whole practice revolves around the idea of, of taking trauma patients and helping them by trying to erase their memories of the trauma that, that dogs them. Uh, and then, of course, there's a, a, a shadowy figure behind the scenes who starts manipulating her patients and changing their memories, and, and naturally terrible, terrible things start to happen. And Frost Easton has to come in and, and save the day. Um, so, um, so the, the, the Nightbird came out last year, last January of, of 2017. Uh, it was a huge, huge success. It was a number one bestseller uh, on, on Amazon. Uh, in fact, it was one of the top 20 Kindle bestsellers of 2017. Uh, so I was, I was just overwhelmed with the response to uh, the Nightbird. Uh, and then I wrote uh, a follow-up book called The Voice Inside, which came out this year. And you know, anytime you have a, a first book that does that well, you're always a little nervous about how the second book uh, is, is going to do. And uh, I've been so gratified by the response from readers to The Voice Inside because um, uh, 
so many people have told me they, they loved the voice inside even more than they loved the Nightbird, which was, was so popular. Uh, and, uh, and, and the voice inside, again, kind of starts to, to really explore the inner life of Frost Easton. And uh, those are the kinds of things, I, again, I like to do in my book, is start pulling you in emotionally with these characters. Well, a um, couple books coming out next year. Yes, I'm, I'm writing two books a year these days. They're, they're, they're keeping me hopping. Uh, so the third Frost Easton book uh, will be coming out in uh, January uh, next year, January 29th. Uh, it is called The Crooked Street, and those of you who are familiar with San Francisco know that Lombard Street is the crookedest street in the world. Uh, does that play in? Well, yes, it, it just might. Uh, so uh, uh, the, uh, the, the Crooked Street comes out in January. Uh, I, I won't tell you much about it uh, except to say that, that you will probably hate me uh, <laughs> when you finish it off. <laughs> uh, and. Um, and then uh, I've got another book coming out in, uh, a little bit later in 2019, uh, and it's a very, very different kind of project. I did a, uh, I, I did a special deal with uh, Audible, uh, and so I just finished off the draft of a, an audio book original. Um, so it's gonna come out exclusively from Audible next spring. So they'll have a, a six-month exclusive on the book as an audio book before we, we have the print rights available. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really different. I, I'm, so, I'm so pleased with this book. It's, um, uh, it, it introduces an all-new character, a, uh, a, a sheriff's deputy in, uh, in, in, in Middle County, this sort of this unnamed mid Midwestern county. I don't say exactly which state it's in, by the name of Shelby Lake. And uh, Shelby is, is 25 years old when the book starts. Uh, and the whole story is told through her first-person narration, and so it'll have a, a female narrator that does the entire book when it comes out from Audible. Um, I spent, uh, I, I've spent the last several months working on that book, and uh, uh, I turned it in, uh, uh, I think a week ago Sunday, uh, and once again, as Marsha and I tend to do, we schedule a vacation immediately after the book deadline, so we could, I can get away and, and not think about it for a few days, because I figured, well, I'll have several weeks before the editor gets back to me. Uh, literally the day after I turned in the book, uh, my editor at Audible wrote back, he had picked it up after I sent it in uh, and had not put it down until uh, hours later when he was done and uh, absolutely loved the book. So, um, so it means I, I still had it hanging over my head on vacation, but uh, I'm so thrilled with, uh, with the book. I, I can't wait to have it available. and I, I can't wait to hear how the narrator interprets it as well. The title of that book is the deep, deep snow, and uh, I, uh, I, I, I think you'll love it. I, I can't wait to have it. Uh, I can't wait to have it in your hands. Um, so, well, I thought what I would do is um, is give you a little taste of, of alter ego, uh, so uh, you can have a, a sense of sort of what my my latest Stride novel is. You don't actually meet Stride in this first chapter, um, but uh, you know me. When when a, when a book starts, I, I have to have sort of a, a very puzzling, mysterious introduction where things are happening, and, and then I shift into another part of the case. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read you that section, and then you'll, you'll have a chance to meet Stride's partner, Maggie. And uh, Maggie, of course, is one of my all-time favorite characters in the Stride series. I, I just love her. So this is how Alter Ego begins. The man in the Australian oilskin coat and black cowboy hat didn't realize it yet, but fate already had dealt him the 13th tarot card. A skeleton on a white horse rode his way, bringing death. He had 90 seconds to live. 
He struggled through knee-deep snow past skeletal birches and evergreens that shook their hunched shoulders at him. The bitter, driving wind in his face was so cold it actually burned. Under the clouds, the night was black with no moon or stars. He used a flashlight to make his way back to the lonely highway. When he looked behind him, he saw wind and snow filling in his footsteps. Soon, there would be no evidence that he'd been here at all. An owl hooted above him. The bird was close by, but then it lifted invisibly over the high trees, as if alarmed by his arrival. Its mournful calls got farther away. Owls were another harbinger of coming death, but he didn't think about that. He was a summer man in a winter place. It was January in the empty lands northwest of Duluth. The coat he wore would have been fine for a Florida cold front, but not for the sub-zero temperatures here. His leather gloves were unlined. His feet inside his boots were wet from the deep snow. The cowboy hat left his ears exposed, and he wore no scarf over his face. He'd been outside for half an hour. Skin froze in 10 minutes. The trail back to the road felt endless. He didn't recall traveling so far on his way in, but if you were hiding something you didn't want anyone to find, you had to look for the most remote section of the forest. Adrenaline had propelled him at first, but now he was simply numb. He was ready to get away and go back home to the south. In his imagination, warm sunshine glowed on a long stretch of sand by the still waters of the gulf. Sixty seconds remained. The light of his flashlight finally glinted on his rented Chevy Impala on the shoulder of Highway 48. Its windshield was already dusted over with fresh snow. He trudged the last few steps and climbed inside. He switched on the engine and waited for warm air to blast through the vents. In the mirror, he saw his face, which was mottled white. He peeled off his gloves, threw them on the seat, <clears throat> and struggled to bend his fingers. He kicked off his boots and rolled off his wet socks. He'd drive barefoot. The windshield wipers pushed away the snow that had gathered while he was gone. He glanced at the woods from where he'd come and couldn't see his trail in the darkness. A few more minutes, another inch of snow, and the white bed would look virginal again. He drove away fast, kicking up a white cloud behind him. His speed was reckless. The pavement was almost invisible in the blizzard, and the plows wouldn't be out until morning. Even so, he wanted to put as much distance as he could between himself and the place where he'd stopped. He grabbed his phone from the inside pocket of his coat. Signal was weak here, but he punched a single speed dial number with his thumb. He heard a ringing on the other end. It was the middle of the night, but his contact was waiting for his call. It's me, he said. His numb lips slurred the words. Any problems? The person on the other end asked. No. Where are you? I'm leaving town. Okay. Good luck. That was all. He hung up the phone. If he'd glanced out the window next to him, he might have seen the skeleton keeping pace with his car and counting off the last few seconds with the bones of its hand. Ten, nine, 
8. Headlights shone in the opposite lane. There were only two vehicles out on the snow-swept road, his Impala and a truck roaring northward toward him. He leaned forward, squinting. Something strange was happening. The truck's lights blinked at him. A shadow came and went in front of them. He heard a bass horn, a thud, and a quick screech of tires. His heart pounded, but the truck passed him safely with a shudder of wind. For a millisecond, the deserted highway stretched out in front of him, just wilderness on both sides and snow swirling in his lights like thousands of flies. He remembered that he was going home. That was the last conscious thought of his life. In the next instant, his neck snapped and he was dead. Maggie Bay of the Duluth police zipped her down coat to her chin as she hopped from the driver's seat of her beat-up yellow avalanche. The jacket draped to her knees. It was bright red, making her body look like a tube of lipstick. She pulled the fleece hood over her head, but the wind chill hit her like a shovel to the face. The air temperature was 12 degrees below zero. In the wind, it felt like 40 below. Why the hell do we live here? She asked Sergeant Max Guppo, not hiding her crabbiness. Oh, it's not so bad, Guppo replied cheerfully. A little nippy, maybe. Guppo was as round as he was short, and he had the advantage of 250 pounds of padding on his frame. He seemed blissfully unaware of the cold, although the bulbs on his cheeks looked extra rosy tonight. The highway around them was closed. Clouds of snow blew past the lights of the emergency vehicles. A trailer truck was parked safely on the shoulder a hundred yards to the north. The Impala, which had spun when the driver lost control, was lodged tail first in the drifts at the base of the highway shoulder. Its windshield was completely shattered. Maggie could see the forlorn brown carcass of the deer where the first responders had dumped it in the snow after prying it from the front seat of the Impala. Tell me again, what happened here? She said. Freak accident, Guppo replied. The truck back there hit a deer and the thing went airborne. Must have been like a missile. The deer landed on the Impala, went through the windshield and took out the driver. Broke his neck, practically decapitated him. Talk about your bad luck. Maggie shook her head. Yikes, killed by a flying deer two weeks after Christmas. What do you think, dancer, prancer, vixen? <laughs> Guppo choked back a laugh. I heard the EMT saying they should stick a red nose on the deer before you got here. Maggie grinned. She had a well-earned reputation for sarcasm. When you're a 40-year-old detective small enough to buy your clothes in the teen section and you have to boss around 20-something Minnesota cops who look like Paul Bunyan, you learn pretty fast to develop a smart mouth. Who called in the accident, she asked. The truck driver, he saw the car go off the road in his mirror. Is he okay? Fine, the deer barely dented his truck. Was he drunk? The deer? I don't think so. <laughs> Guppel laughed as Maggie's bloodshot eyes narrowed into annoyed little slits. No, the truck driver was sober. Okay, you want to tell me why we're here? Maggie asked. This looks like nothing more than a weird traffic accident. I'm guessing there must be some other reason the highway cops called us in. Guppo nodded. He hoisted a hard-shell plastic case in his gloved hand 
and set it on the hood of Maggie's avalanche. The cops found this case in the snow a few feet from the wreck of the Impala. It must have been ejected through the window when the car went off the shoulder. As soon as they saw what was inside, they called me. Guppo popped the lid of the case. Inside, nestled in foam cushioning, was a black Glock and a spare ammunition clip. Maggie leaned forward and gave it a whiff. This thing's been fired recently. Yeah, and it gets more interesting. I checked the guy's pockets after they pulled him out. He had $10,000 in cash wrapped up in a tight roll. His wallet had nothing in it except a Florida driver's license under the name James Lyons at an address in Miami. I made a call to the Miami PD to check him out. They're supposed to call me back. Anything else? He was barefoot. His boots were soaking wet, covered with pine needles. So were the legs of his pants. He'd been walking through the woods not long before the accident. In the middle of the night, in a blizzard like this? I don't like that. Have we checked the trunk of the car? Nah, it's buried in the snow. We won't be able to get to it until we get a tow truck out here. And the car? It was rented 10 days ago at the Minneapolis airport. He had a receipt in his pocket from a cheap place renting efficiency apartments up on the hill in Hermantown. Paid cash. He's been in town since he rented the car. Maggie shoved the hood back from her head. The wind made a mess of her black hair. She'd worn bowl-cut bangs for most of her life, but she'd been growing her hair out for six months. Her stylist had added some spiral curls. Now she looked like Lucy Liu, if Lucy wore no makeup and hadn't gotten any sleep in days. She wandered over to the ambulance and gestured for the EMTs to open the rear doors. She clambered inside where the body of the Impala driver lay under a sheet on a metal gurney. She drew the sheet back to study his face, which was difficult to distinguish because of the blood. She could make out scars and a dimpled square jaw. His blondish hair was short and shot through with gray, and it had a ridge where he'd worn a hat. He wasn't old, but was probably north of 50. What were you shooting at, she murmured. Then she stared through the back of the ambulance at the empty forest land that went on for miles. And what were you doing out here? Maggie pulled the sheet back over the body and climbed out of the ambulance. She slid down the slick slope from the highway to the wreck of the Impala, which jutted into the air at a 45-degree angle. The front doors were cracked open. The back doors were entombed in drifts. All the windows were shattered and empty. She peered inside and saw that the front seats were covered in glass and blood. Through the back windows, she saw a cowboy hat upside down against the rear window. On the rear floor, she noticed a crumpled piece of newspaper. She reached in through the broken window to grab the paper with her gloved hand. Blood had soaked the pages. When she smoothed out the four-page sheet, she recognized an entertainment tabloid called the National Gazette. The newspaper was a week old. That's what you were reading? She murmured. Really? She turned over the sheet and saw an article outlined with black marker. The headline read, New Dean Casperson Thriller Dogged by Winter Weather. The rest of the article was illegible, but Maggie didn't need to read it. She knew all about the film that was being shot on location around Duluth. It was called The Caged Girl, and it was based on a series of murders that had taken place in the city more than a decade earlier. She'd lived the case. She'd been part of it. 
Of course, in typical Hollywood fashion, the role of the Chinese cop was now a bit part given to a red-headed bombshell. Life was unfair. She heard the labored breathing of Max Guppo as he slipped down the snowy slope to join her beside the car. She pointed at the article in the tabloid. Guppo read the headline. You think this is about the movie? Could be. You gonna call Stride? Sure, she replied. Why should he get to sleep when we're awake? I've got something else, Guppo added. I just got a call back from the police in Miami. And? The driver's license is for someone named James Lyons, but the real James Lyons died five years ago. Our corpse is a John Doe. He's some kind of ghost. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Brian Freeman and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Brian Freeman is involved in the decision on who voices his audiobooks. Has he ever considered being the voice for his own novels? Uh, the same narrator has done uh, all of my thrillers, going all the way back to Immoral. Uh, it's a Connecticut actor by the name of Joe Barrett. And uh, Joe was originally selected uh, by the folks at Blackstone Audio, which, which got the audio rights to Immoral. Um, and uh, I didn't really have any involvement in that. It was, it was again, very much at the beginning of, of my career. Uh, and I, I like the idea of sort of a consistent voice for my books. And so Joe has been the, the voice uh, all the way along, and they actually brought him in, even though it was a completely separate audio publisher, they brought Joe in to do the Frost Easton books uh, as well. So uh, I, I like that, uh, and, and uh, uh, Joe has done a wonderful job with, uh, with the books. Uh, he's also learned uh, his lesson that uh, before he uh, records one of my books, he, he contacts me to ask about the pronunciation of things. Uh, I think after, uh, uh, after he read out Eli, Minnesota, uh, and, uh, and he heard from Minnesotans about that. Uh, he, he realized he'd, he'd better talk to me first. So um, uh, uh, Now, the, um, the audiobook for Audible next year, that will obviously be a whole new narrator because it'll, it'll have a, a woman involved in, in doing it. Um, I'm, I, I imagine I'm going to have some role in, in working with, with them to, to pick the narrator. Um, so uh, it'll be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm real curious to see kind of how that process goes um, because it, it, I, I, this is the first time I've written a book specifically with the idea of it, it going straight to audio. Um, so uh, that'll be a really interesting process. Have I ever thought about doing it myself? Um, you know, I, I have, um, but the thing is, yeah, I'm not an actor, uh, I, I, so I can do prose sections, but the idea of adopting different voices for the characters, I, I think that that's probably something that I, I would want an actor to do more than I would feel comfortable with. Uh, but what I, I'm starting kind of a new process. Um, uh, I'm starting to record uh, the first chapters of, of all of my books um, on video, and I'm going to be posting those on, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I already did it for Alter Ego, so you can actually find me doing Alter Ego out on, um, on Facebook uh, and on the Amazon page for the book as well. Uh, and I'm going to be starting now to do all the other books as well. So at least people kind of get a flavor of how I hear the books in my head because it is very different. Uh, I mean, the funny thing is, Joe, I, I hear such great things from listeners about Joe Barrett's narrations, but I can't listen to them myself. 
because I hear the book in my head in a certain way, and hearing him do it, it's like, no, no, that's not the way it sounds at all. <laughs> this audience member asks who Freeman would imagine playing Jonathan Stride if his books were ever adapted into films. You know, it's, it's really interesting. One of, the, one of the best questions I ever had at an event was a few years ago, somebody asked me um, uh, if I met Jonathan Stride on the street, would I recognize him? Uh, and I said, you know, I don't think I would, but I bet you would, uh, because I very deliberately paint Stride in watercolors. Uh, I provide enough detail to seed your imagination, and then I want you to fill in the other details of, of who he is and what he looks like, because I think then you're more emotionally invested in the character, because your imagination is, is part of what brings that character to life on the page and, and in your head. But the result of that is, I think, that it means when I ask people who they think should play Stride in the movies, I get very, very different responses because I think they all have a particular vision of who Stride is in their head. And I'm always a little reluctant to give my vision because, of course, you know, my mind may be very, very different from yours. Uh, you know, when I started out, um, I, I think I always kind of had in mind someone like Russell Crowe. I, I kind of always thought he had sort of the the combination of toughness and emotional sensitivity that, that I expected for Stride. He might be getting a little long in the tooth to, to do Stride. Now, Stride himself is no spring chicken at this point, um, although he has pulled off a pretty amazing trick. Uh, when I started writing Immoral, uh, Stride was older than I was, and now here we are 15 years later, and I am several years older than Stride. <laughs> so if only I could get that to work in real life. Um, but uh, well, who do you think should play? Uh, who do you think should play Stride? Ah, interesting. It changes every book. That it could be. Yeah, it could be. Uh, you know, and it would be very different in television versus the movies as well. I think it would be a very different, uh, a very different approach. But um, but you know, that's the way actors work too. I mean, um, uh, when when they first announced that that Matt Damon was going to do Jason Bourne in in the Bourne Identity, I, I thought Matt Damon. Looks like he's 12 years old. How could he possibly pull off Jason Bourne? But you know, he he really embodied the role and he really made it his own. And, and that's what that's what great actors do. So this question is about which of Freeman's books is his favorite. Oh boy, that's like asking me to, you know, to pick my, my favorite child, isn't it? So um, you know, it's 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 hard because um, uh, each book is gonna have a, a certain, I, I'm gonna have a certain passion for it for different reasons. You know, I'll always uh, Immoral was my breakthrough book, so I'm always going to have a very special place in my heart for Immoral. Uh, Spilled Blood, um, a standalone thriller I wrote based in southwestern Minnesota, uh, Spilled Blood won the award for best hardcover novel in the International Thriller Writer Awards. Uh, that will always be one of the, the, the all-time great moments of my life. Um, but I find that um, my favorite book tends to be the one that I've, I've finished most recently, because at that point I'm so intimately connected to the story and the characters that I'm just so close to the entire book that I think it's, it's naturally my favorite. So if you ask me today, I would probably say uh, The Deep Deep Snow, the, the audiobook for Audible, is my favorite because I'm, I'm so close to the book right now. And you know, it's, it's, it's very different from anything else that I, I have written. Uh, one of the things, people will sometimes ask me, well gosh, why don't you just do Jonathan Stride novels? And you know, I, I feel like uh, I have so many different stories to tell and, and so many different characters that I want to bring to you on the page. Uh, and, and the thing is, different stories work uh, in, in different settings and with different characters, and, and I want the chance to sort of, of, of 
let all of those things flow onto the page. And I think you have to kind of go in different directions to, to do that. It would be sort of like, you know, if, if you like Tom Hanks in, in Forrest Gump, um, but the only thing he ever did was, was play Forrest Gump. You'd, you'd then miss out on all of the other you know, roles and characters that, that he can bring you as an actor. Well, I kind of feel the same way uh, as a writer, that I'm trying to, to bring all of these different stories and characters to life for you. So, so I hope you stick around for the, for the ride. This audience member asked what drives Freeman to write about different characters and publish multiple books a year. Uh, eating has a lot to do with that. Um, uh, you know, it, um, uh, it, it really is a question of, of um, the, the hardest one is the first one for a new character because you're really getting to know that character for the first time. So the hardest Frost Easton book was, was The Nightbird, the hardest stride book was immoral because you're really getting to know who that character is. And then um, what, what, then it actually becomes fun for me because at that point uh, I've, I've met this person and I have a chance to sort of let them start to grow and evolve and, and get to know them. Um, you know, Stride, I've now done 10 different Stride books and, and I, I'm, I'm so close to him, I, I can understand what he, what he thinks and, and how he reacts. I just know him that well, and I, I, I see how his life is, is growing and how, you know, getting married in, in, in Goodbye to the Dead and, and this teenage girl that's now living with, with him and Serena, how his life has changed as around that. So I want to get back and, and, and find out what's going to happen next for him as a character. Uh, and with Frost, um, for Frost, uh, it, it's kind of exciting for me because uh, working on a Frost book is like going back to the very beginning of the Stride series where this is a new character for me and I, I don't know what's ahead for him and there's so many different twists and turns that I have yet to discover in his life. So uh, for me it's very exciting then to go back to a character like that who's, who's younger and newer and I don't know him as well as Stride to have the chance to sort of see how his life plays out. So for, that's really what it's all about for me is, is kind of seeing how the, these characters, how these, these stories unfold. This next question is about who Brian Freeman likes to read. I, uh, the, probably the, the hardest thing about breaking through as a writer was the fact that, uh, you know, I used to be a big fan of the genre. I would read lots of mysteries and thrillers. I, I realized very quickly that I just can't do it anymore. Uh, you know, when, when, you, when you write suspense all day long, the idea of curling up with someone else's suspense novel at the end of the day kind of feels like work. Um, you know, it, it becomes market research rather than, than entertainment. So I, I finally just decided, you know, it, it just doesn't work for me. So I, I have very eclectic tastes at this point. I, I read uh, a lot of history and biographies and memoirs. Sometimes I'll go back and read classics. Um, so um, I, was reading a, uh, I was reading a book about uh, Teddy Roosevelt and his cruise down the river of doubt in, in South America, which was a, I think, uh, uh, I, I, Candace Millard, I think, is the author of that. Wonderful, uh, wonderful book. Uh, uh, but that's the kind of thing I'm reading these days, is, is nonfiction, mostly, mostly histories and biographies. So, As a follow-up, an audience member asks which writers inspired Freeman to start a career in writing. You know, when I was a kid in, in, the, in the 70s, um, I, I didn't really read that many mysteries and thrillers. Uh, I read more of the big dramatic writers, folks like uh, James Mishner and uh, Leon Uris and, and Irvin Wallace, uh, folks like that. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why I don't uh, necessarily write traditional thrillers. Um, I, I like to write thrillers that are more character-driven and, and more emotional because I think it's, it's, 
going back to some of those sort of sprawling family sagas that, uh, that, that some of those folks wrote. Um, I remember my, probably my all-time favorite novel uh, was uh, Trinity by Leon Uris, uh, which was about the struggles in, in Ireland. Uh, and I remember, it, I remember reading it when I was in high school, and it was a first-person narration, uh, and, and it deals with this, this young fighter in, in the Irish resistance. And, and you go through this very long seven, 800-page novel, and you get to the very end, uh, and the narrator uh, uh, is killed. He's, he's shot to death. Uh, and that was, such a, and it, that was such an extraordinary moment for me as a reader uh, and as an aspiring writer, because I, it, it not only had such an emotional impact on me as a reader, but it opened my eyes to the idea of what you can, what, what rules you can break as a writer, of, of taking your reader all the way through the voice of this one character and then, and then actually killing off a first person character at the end of the book. Uh, that, you know, reading that, I felt like, you know what, that's, that's what I want to be able to do with my life. I want to be able to have that kind of emotional impact on people when they, when they read stories. Having, having said that, I'm not going to kill off Jonathan Stride, am I? No, 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 no. Um, no, no, I've always, swore, I've always sworn that I will never kill off a, a major character. Uh, I, I may put them through hell, uh, and I certainly have, uh, but I, I've, I've always promised I won't, I won't kill them off, mostly because I feel like when you kill off a, a major character, it, it harms the ability of the reader to go back and, and reread the books and get the same enjoyment out of them, because, because when, you, when you go back and reread the books, you're always then kind of consumed by the shadow of knowing what the fate of that character is. And I think it, it makes people resist then going back and rediscovering the books. And I always tell people I want them to go back and reread the books because they're going to, they're going to discover nuances and, and, and layers of meaning uh, in the books that they missed the first time through because they were so anxious to get to the end and, and find out all the twists. So, so no, I won't kill anybody off, I think. Another person from the audience asked Freeman about a former teacher he had that would give him special writing assignments to encourage his passion. Yeah, yeah, I, I had a wonderful uh, eighth grade composition teacher, uh, Ms. Bartke. She'll always be Ms. Bartke. I mean, it doesn't matter how old I get. Um, and yeah, she, uh, she recognized my love of writing and uh, uh, she did something I think, you know, these days uh, a teacher could never get away with with all the standardized tests and curricula and everything. Uh, she, she told me, when you come to my class, uh, don't worry so much about the lesson plans. Just, just sit there and write your stories. And, uh, and that was what I did for her class. And it was after her class that I really start, sat down and that summer started in on my first full-length novel. Spent 18 months finishing that. And from that moment forward, that was what I wanted to do with my life, was, was write books. And it was very special when, it, she's actually mentioned in the acknowledgments of Immoral, uh, and when Immoral came out in 2005, uh, I was actually able to track her down and invite her to the very first book signing that we did for Immoral out in California where my folks lived. And, uh, and so I got a chance to thank her in person for, for you know, what she had done to, to set me on my path. Of course, it was funny, they actually did a little uh, newspaper article about that and she was laughing with me afterwards. She said the reporter had said to her, well, gosh, it must be, uh, it must be you know, so nice to see one of your former students' names in the newspaper. And she said, I didn't want to tell them that typically when I see one of my students' names in the newspaper, it's because they're going to prison. So. <laughs> this question is if Freeman plans on writing any more crossover books between his characters. Uh, Alter Ego, in, in addition to being a, a stride novel, is, is my first crossover book. 
Uh, I have two Cab Bolton novels. Cab is this wonderful six foot six, very you know dashing Florida detective, uh, Hollywood mother. Uh, he's just a he's he's, he's he takes. Uh, he, he takes life seriously, but he doesn't take himself seriously at all. And uh, he's such a fun character to write. I introduced him in The Bone House um, a few years ago, and uh, people started clamoring to see more Cab, and so I wrote a follow-up book called Season of Fear, uh, which is all Cab. Uh, and I just haven't, I had not gotten around to, um, to bringing Cab back uh, and writing another Cab novel. Um, but as I was thinking about the plot of Alter Ego and the Hollywood connections for Jonathan Stride, given Cab Bolton's Hollywood connections through his mother, I thought, well, it would be just such a natural to try to see if I could fold Cab Bolton into this book. Uh, and, and people have asked me for years, well, do you ever see Stride and Cab you know, meeting? And I said, well, I don't think so. I, I don't think that would ever really work. But I said, you know, if it did, I could see Maggie being the bridge that would bring these two together, because Maggie is, is sort of cab-like in, in uh, being a very snarky and sarcastic character herself. And so I just knew that, uh, that Maggie and Cab would, would sort of, you know, there'd be sparks flying if those two ever met. So sure enough, I, I brought them together in, in Alter Ego. It, it made for such a fun twist as, as part of the book. Um, will it happen in the future? You know, I don't know. Now that they, they know each other, uh, that, door is certainly, that door is certainly open. Uh, and of course, now people have been asking, well, you're gonna have Stride and Frost Easton meet. Uh, uh, well, we'll see. Uh, I, I've, I've learned to never say never. You, know, it, uh, you, you never know what's gonna happen. Our next question is what Freeman's first novel was that didn't star Jonathan Stride. The Bonehouse was my first non-Stride novel. Yeah, The Bonehouse started in Florida and then moved up to Door County. Um, you know, I, I, I always wanna give people kind of a you are there feel with the settings. I, I want them to, to just spring to life on the page and, and you feel as if you're sort of this invisible observer in every scene and you can feel it and touch it and taste it and smell it and sense it happening all around you. Uh, and, uh, and you know, the bone, uh, Door County is one of my very favorite places, uh, just like Duluth is. Uh, of course, I, I usually tell people that and, and readers who, who know my books, they say, well, what would you say about the places that you don't like? Because uh, <laughs> I'm always a little nervous about how the Duluthians are gonna react to all this murder and mayhem I bring to town. I, kind of expect the mayor to start slipping me brochures about Mankato, you know, see if she could get me to relocate, so. Yeah, they, uh, they, they just love it. They, 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 they are so good at embracing it up in Duluth, and they make Marcia and I feel like uh, we're going home every time we go up there. I remember uh, I did an event at the Barnes & Noble at, at Miller Hill a couple books back, and uh, I got to the Q&A period, and the very first question was from this woman who, who stood up and, and asked me uh, rather indignantly, when are you gonna kill someone in my neighborhood? <laughs> so I asked where she lived and I, I was able to assure her I was gonna be dispatching someone in the next book practically across the street from her. So. Our last question of the night is about where Jonathan Stride is heading next. I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm actually pulling together, I'm in the very early stages of pulling together the plot for the next Stride novel right now. And, uh, and, and as I mentioned, usually the first thing I do is to start kind of asking um, you know, what, what's happening in, in Stride's life and what's going on with him and Serena and Maggie and Kat and, and what are kind of the next natural uh, conflicts that they're, they're likely to envision. So, um, uh, so yeah, it could, could, be, could be a tough book. Could be a tough book for Stride, yeah. Usually try to go one at a time because um, because the characters be evolve based on what happens to them in each book, I can't plan out too far ahead because 
uh, they're going to change based on what a particular book happens to them. So it, it then changes what might happen in the book after that. But thank you so much for being here tonight. It's, this was so much fun. I really appreciate it. And, and thank you so much for, for, for staying with, with me and following along with, with Jonathan Stride and Frost Easton all these years. So thank you so much. That wraps up our Carver County Library Chanhassen event with Brian Freeman. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Will Haygood at St. Paul Public Library, Rondo. African-American historian Will Haygood is best known to many for his biographies of the White House butler, Eugene Allen, upon which the 2013 film The Butler is based. His latest, Tigerland, explores national race tensions in the late 1960s through the lens of high school sports. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>